Hey, it's Ryan. I'm really excited to share something special as Season 2 of 30 for 30 Podcast is right around the corner starting November 14th. Today we are debuting the trailer for Season 2 and also sharing one of our favorite episodes from Season 1 titled Yankees Suck. One heads up, significant chunks of the story deal with youthful indiscretions. We've censored any strong language, but it's mature subject matter and there are some descriptions of violence, so consider yourself warned. And if you haven't already, now's the time to subscribe to 30 for 30 Podcast because we both know you're already subscribed to The Rosillo Show, right? Right? So, without further ado, here's a preview of what's coming from Season 2 of the 30 for 30 Podcasts. First time I saw that photo, I sort of recoiled. I sort of physically moved back from my telephone with a whoa. Returning this November, ESPN Films critically acclaimed 30 for 30 podcasts. If this photo and if this moment was the um, rekindle of the fire for athletes to speak upon things, then um, I guess we did our job. (laughs) This season, we have a new lineup of audio documentaries, including the inside story of how the hoodie became a symbol for justice. We can't help Trayvon now, but how can we help his family out? You know, me, LeBron, Chris, all of us felt a certain way. But what do y'all want to do about it? We'll look at how unlikely innovators... Hi, everyone. Welcome to John Madden Football. ...built sports juggernauts. If I'm going to be paying a royalty on a football game, then I want the biggest name I can get. And it wasn't that hard to figure out that it was John Madden. And the turbulent origins of a billion-dollar empire. I got the T-shirt says there are no rules. What are the rules that we need to talk about? Hey, the UFC can start right here, right now. I'll take your brother on right now. I was simply bringing back the glory of the ancient world. How could I go wrong? Come on. We'll explore how daylight became a baseball team's unlikely opponent. The lack of lights at Wrigley Field for night baseball may have been a great tradition, but it was really becoming a detriment to the organization. And pitted the team against some of their biggest fans. Oh, you mean our tradition was always lousy and now you're going to build a new one? And the tale of how a man's unlikely journey to the edge of space. I promised my mother that I'm coming back because I'm surrounded by the best scientists on this planet. Was a bigger challenge than even he could ever imagine. And I'm not going to let my mother down because you guys make a mistake. The second season of 30 for 30 podcast featuring five new stories begins Tuesday, November 14th. But here's a full episode from our first season after a short break. From ESPN Films and ESPN Audio, you're listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts, presented by the Mini Countrymen. Today, Yankees suck. It's arguably the greatest rivalry in sports, the Red Sox and the Yankees. Boston fans have been chanting Yankees suck for decades, but in the late 90s, the faith of the Sox and the chant charted the same course, when a group of kids showed up at Fenway Park with what would become one of the most successful bootleg t-shirts in history. These guys aren't the only ones to profit off of Yankees suck, but they're definitely the most colorful. Our own Boston native and diehard Sox fan, Julia Lowey-Henderson, tells the story. A heads up, this episode features a lot of strong opinions and even more profanity, starting right now. Welcome to Boston. (laughs) 
Yankees suck. We hate the Yankee fans. We hate the way they talk. Like, hey, but a bingo. And they're all from, like, they're not even from the city. Like, the, guy, the further away from the city you go, like, to the mall and the Palisades, the more you're going to hear some guy like, but a bingo, I'm freaking a Yankee fan. Ew. <laughs> That's Ray LeMoyne. In case you couldn't tell, Ray doesn't like the Yankees. The Yankees represent pinstripes, like, you know, Wall Street, Rudy Giuliani, like, everything that sucks. I can't even think one thing that they do that's cool besides playing the Bronx. Like, nothing. I even hate Derek Jeter. Millions of people in and around Boston feel this way about the Yankees. I am one of those people. Ray LeMoyne and I grew up in neighboring Boston suburbs. Hating the Yankees is part of our heritage. It has brought generations of Bostonians together. But Ray did something none of the rest of us did. He took that hatred and made a ton of money off of it. It was thousands of dollars. I had $20,000 in a shoebox once. It was, you know, in, in the hundreds of thousands. The Red Sox-Yankees rivalry is what you would call a wicked big deal in Boston. Sox fans know it by heart. I know it by heart. Hit high in the air to left field. Going to the corner, Yaspinski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead 3-2. It wasn't much of a rivalry for, like, 80 years or so. It was the rivalry of the hammer and the nail, and Boston was the nail. Dan Shaughnessy, Boston Globe, author of The Curse of the Bambino, baseball guy. It goes all the way back to 1919 and the sale of Babe Ruth from the Red Sox to the Yankees for cash. And from that point on, the Red Sox don't win another World Series for over 80 years. And the Yankees rack up 26 titles. And so, no matter who we lost to, especially if it was in the World Series, it was always the Yankees' fault. Little roller up along first, behind the band! It gets through Buckner! Here comes Knight and the Mets win it! That ball through Buckner's legs in the 1986 World Series is one of my earliest baseball memories. It's also how I learned that to be a Red Sox fan was to suffer. Watching with my family, you know, the, the discussions around the Thanksgiving table were, uh, who's going to blow up for the Sox this year? My name is Ian Hill. I am one of the biggest Red Sox fans around. If you look historically at the Yankee-Sox rivalry, they break our hearts and then they take our players. As for Boston already bleeding, well, now their wound has just gotten deeper with the news today that Roger Clemens will be wearing Yankee pinstripes. It's like your girlfriend breaking up with you and then going out to date your best friend right, you know, right in front of your eyes. So how do we respond to our continued humiliation at the hands of the Yankees? With three syllables. Yankees suck. Yankees suck. Yankees suck. It gave Red Sox fans some satisfaction. And it's got a nice cadence to it. You know, the two syllables followed by the one syllable. It's got a good punctuation to it, exclamation point. Yankees Yankees suck. When it starts, your eyes kind of light up and go, yeah, they do suck. Yes, we do hate the Yankees. And you turn around and you start high-fiving and it gets the blood flowing. It's like a rallying cry. You could chant Yankees suck anywhere, right? And you you didn't have to be at a Sox game. So firstly, like, you would chant at any professional thing. You'd chant at a Pats game, at a Celts game, at a Bruins game. You would hear Yankees suck at a funeral, Yankees suck at a football game. 
Yankee suck at a beauty salon. You could be at a birthday party, a high school graduation party, a bar mitzvah, wedding, you know, it, it, you break out anywhere. So like the WBCN River Rave at the Hat Shell down by like the Charles... Uh, at the Boston Marathon, seeing the band Mo at the Orpheum. I'm Noam Osband. I'm a former mass hole, big sports fan. They were playing the White Sox. They weren't playing the Yankees. But I'm a mass hole. I start chanting Yankees suck. I'm trying to get the people around me to chant Yankees suck. And I remember somebody saying to me, like, you're at a White Sox game. Like, why are you chanting that? And I say, I can't believe I said this. I can't believe I said this. I said, you know, when we fought in World War II, we chanted the Nazis and we didn't chant the Italians because we kept our eye on the real enemy and the real enemy is the Yankees. I mean, that's not like the greatest logic, but I just wanted to say Yankees suck. And I was young and drunk. Young, old, drunk, sober. Yankees suck was our mantra. And Ray Lemoyne knew just what to do with it. I was driving a cab in Boston. At the time, I was the youngest cab driver, and the pace sucked. Whether or not Ray Lemoyne was the youngest cab driver in Boston, in 1998, he was a student at Northeastern University with tuition and rent to pay. So he got a job as a vendor for the Sox, which is how he ended up vending inside Fenway Park in the spring of 1999. I was in there in an April game, you know, the lowest man on the totem pole probably selling, like, ice cream when it was, like, 50 degrees out. And it was it was not crowded and still in the far right, right by the bleachers, they start chanting Yankees suck. And it spread, you know, all the way to the bleachers. a Minnesota game on like a Tuesday like in April these people really hate the Yankees and that was when I said you know I bet if someone put that on a shirt because I'm, si- I'm sitting there selling stuff I'm like imagine if I had a shirt that said Yankee Sock go sell it over there put Yankee Sock on a t-shirt its brilliance is eclipsed only by its simplicity take the holy chant of this Boston Red Sox religion and give it material form but he needed help to make his epiphany happen so Naturally, he turned to his friends in the hardcore scene. I'm Anthony Pappalardo. Anthony is one of those friends. Despite the perception that punks are kind of not like jocks, I think in New England, Boston, I think those cultures, in a weird way, and I think this ties into the Red Sox, punk was analogous, is that the right word, with sporting culture because it was an underdog culture. That and hardcore kids look like bros. The whole irony was, you know, we hate jocks, but like we love certain aspects of jock culture like Air Jordans and stuff. We loved Nikes. We loved, you know, wind pants. We loved like athletic, bold fonts. And this athletic, jockey, collegiate aesthetic came directly from the bands they worshipped. Bands like SSD Control and Slapshot and Ten Yard Fight. Shaved head, hooded sweatshirt, cuffed jeans, high top sneakers, hardcore kid. Specific, not punk rocker, not skateboarder, hardcore kid. Welcome to the world of Boston hardcore, which was about to infiltrate the Boston sports world thanks to Ray Lemoyne and his friends, Jamie. 
My name is Jamie Manza. His nickname was Mr. Awesome, you know, because he was a pretty awesome guy and he knew it. Todd. Yeah, I'm Todd Wilson. And then Todd was, I met him like beating someone up in front of my dorm like the first week of college at Northeastern. And Eric. Eric had a license from California and it looked exactly like Rusty Griswold, like exactly. And we're like, dude, what? <laughs> so he, he became Rusty. Together, Ray, Jamie, Todd, and Eric would come up with the ultimate Yankee Sox scheme. The actual designer of the Yankee Sox shirt could be any number of people. Ray and Jamie don't even know. I don't remember who designed the first shirt. I have no idea. I always assumed it was Anthony Papalardo or John LaCroix, but I don't know. It was probably LaCroix. It wasn't Kaplicki either. It might have been Jeff, TDT. I'm almost 100% positive that this design was based on a Boston Sox shirt that was sold at Yankee Stadium. I think it was in, like, red ink. It was stolen from the Bronx. We just did a different typeface. We owe New York everything. The idea may have been stolen from New York, but the design of their Yankee Sox shirt, down to the font, came directly from their hardcore punk look. The de facto font is, like, I don't know the official name. It's been called City Bold. It's called Berghold City. And it's this uh, blocky collegiate font. The t-shirt was white. Yankees was written in navy blue, and then the word suck was below it in the reverse, in a blue rectangle with white letters. That's it. Super simple. This was always lacking in sport merchandise because sporting sporting goods come from this uh, mass consumer idea of if it has more colors, if it has more bells and whistles, it's more valuable. Why would I pay $25 for something with one color. It was like everybody's making like 74 color shirts with like a subway like flying across here like a Bud Light shirt, there, a NASCAR like, shirt. No, but like remember how the ink how we used to call it bulletproof ink like, <laughs> the shield um, the shield shirts. Like yeah. if you look at the World Series shirts from like ni- mid 90s on, they were so bad and like so poorly designed and like had 4000 colors and like you know like a fairy and like they'd have like every single thing you could put onto a shirt. And the ink was impenetrable, so underneath the ink you would just sweat. Yeah, it hurts your <laughs> It's hard enough to wear like a red, white, and blue shirt. Like those colors suck. Like I hate red, white. I hate red. Period. It's hard enough to wear that. And so when we were making our own, whether it was shirts for our bands or shirts for Yankee Suck, it was just like simple and bold, and just carry that idea of like that dude hates the Yankees. It's really simple. Ray had his T-shirt epiphany in 1999 which was a really good year for the Sox. 1999 was the first year that the Red Sox were on an equal or pretty close to an equal playing field with the Yankees. I'm Gordon Eats. I'm a historian and strategic communications advisor for the Boston Red Sox. In the late 90s, the Red Sox uh, took a huge step upward and they did so primarily behind two players, Nomar Garciaparra and Pedro Martinez. Another strikeout, and that will uh, create a high for Pedro Martinez with 17 strikeouts. In 1999, you talk about domination. Pedro took the town by storm. Uh, every time Pedro pitched in Fenway Park, and it was an event, you know, Dominican flags flying, you know, Pedro... Uh, the little Dominicano with this tremendous flair, this incredible fastball. The way you know Pedro was great 
was you go to a baseball game, you take a piss when your team is pitching, not when your team is up. They might hit a home run. When you went to a Pedro game, you pissed when your team was hitting because you wanted to be in the stands when Pedro was pitching. He might strike out the side. Who knew what he was going to do? But like you, you didn't want to be at the urinal, you know. And at the end of this historic 1999 season, Ray ordered the first batch of Yankees sock shirts, but not for a ball game. Local hardcore band Ten Yard Fight was scheduled to play its final show on 10-17-99 at Karma Club on Lansdowne Street, across from Fenway Park. 10-17-99 would be equated with something that you didn't even have to explain what it was. I ordered them specifically for Ten Yard Fight's last show. I was going to sell a Yankee Suck shirt with Ten Yard Fight, and then the date was on the back. Ray knew he could count on selling shirts to hardcore kids inside Karma Club. What he couldn't have known when he ordered the shirts was that the Red Sox would be playing the Yankees at Fenway Park in the playoffs for the first time since 1978. The classic stadium, the classic rivalry, the classic pitching matchup, and the classic New England autumnal day. Fenway Park, Boston, teeming since late morning with the hope that lives everlastingly in the heart of every fan of the Old Town team. When Ray showed up to Lansdowne Street on Sunday with 300 shirts he had ordered from a guy in New Jersey, the area was swarming with Red Sox fans pumped for Game 4 at Fenway that night. The second we said Yankee Suck t-shirts, people just cried around us and bought them as fast as as we could sell them. And we were like, whoa, we underestimated that. (laughs) How's everyone doing tonight? Good? All these Sox fans were buying a local punk band's T-shirt. But they didn't care. It said Yankees suck. This will be the last time we ever play live. So enjoy it. This was beautiful because you had the juxtaposition that all these jocks going into the, or, you know, baseball fans on Lansdowne Street on one side of it. And then all these hardcore kids on the other side of the street. What better flashpoint for this than a final show, a bunch of people, there's a playoff game happening, and Ray and Eric come out with the shirt in the font of SSD Control that says Yankees suck in blue, and on the back, the date of the show and the name of not their band, right? So it's like a double bootleg, which you have to give them kudos for not only bootlegging their friend's band, but bootlegging, you know, the Yankees. But while the hardcore kids were moshing away and having a great time, across the street at Fenway, things weren't going as well. Not going, and Ballington a check swing, ground ball, and not block. They say he tagged the runner... This is what Sox fans will always refer to as the phantom tag game. Jimmy Williams comes sprinting out. Jimmy Williams had gone out to to argue the call, and the fans uh, showered the the field with debris, and and George Steinbrenner, who was then the Yankees owner, uh, accused Jimmy of inciting the fans, and Jimmy said, I don't care what Georgie Porgy says. I mean, it's called the phantom tag for a reason. Chuck Knobloch did not tag Jose Offerman. It wasn't even close. Just look at a photo. But it didn't matter. 
The Sox went on to lose the ALCS and their chance to go to the World Series. This is what we do. We lose when it counts. At the time, it just felt like the same old story. But it wasn't. There's no question that that the 99 ALCS, uh, that that ratcheted up the uh, rivalry significantly. The Red Sox-Yankees rivalry had entered a new chapter. And Ray LeMoyne and his friends had the perfect chart for it. The test run had been an overwhelming success. Ray had sold out of 300 shirts in less than 24 hours. So Ray, Todd, Jamie, and Eric officially went into business together. And on opening day of the 2000 season, they showed up with 1,000 shirts. The second we, like, stood on the street with them, they were, like, gone. We sold them in, like, two, three days. Two days, I think. Jamie got arrested the second day, but big deal. So they kept ordering more shirts, and they kept showing up to sell them. And they started bringing more of their friends along to help. Ray even poached fellow vendors from inside Fenway Park, like Jonathan Cho. Ray asked me to sell the T-shirts. He says, we made a bunch of Yankee Suck T-shirts. Do you want to come outside and sell them with us? I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And the moment I got the batch of T-shirts, these shirts started flying. And I was hooked. I'm like, we're doing this. I'm making way more money outside on these t-shirts than I am on the inside at Fenway Park. It was a commission-based system. You get a bag of t-shirts, 25 shirts, and like, just like you're selling weed, you got to bring me the shirts or the money at the end of the night. White shirts, one color, like the typical Yankee suck shirt was 10 bucks. pop. Used to call them $10 crack rocks for jocks. From what I recall, the shirts cost about three bucks to make. We get to keep three dollars per shirt. And then we'd give the rest to Ray and Todd. Yankee Suck T-shirts! Yankee Ray, Todd, Rusty, Jamie, they'd roll up at the end of the game in a minivan or, or their cars. They'd park in a nearby parking lot, and then all the sellers would gather. Well, what do you think about going, like, in between here and, and, the, and, the, and Gate B? And they'd, they'd say, Cho, you're getting Gate D. You know, Mike, you're getting the bridge. Where should we put AJ at? What about just right right here, like right around the If corner? you want to sort do that, like, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty soon, it was impossible to leave a game and not have some dude try to sell you a Yankee Suck shirt. They had Fenway Park surrounded on all sides with a crew of 20 to 30 of their friends. AZ owed me money, so he had to work for us. Bubba. Bubba was... Bubba was a god. Darren Jones is a big seller. Jonathan Cho. He was amazing. He never slept, ever. He was like a very ambitious guy who like had six jobs at the time, including day trading. He had gray hair when he was like 20. He was just like constantly moving. And he had the voice. Yankee suck t-shirts here. Yankee suck t-shirts. And I'd be climbing up on nearby fences, putting up the shirts, yelling, and people were swarming me. It was unbelievable. I felt like a rock star. He'd always sell like the most. He, he was always one of the top sellers. I'd be going through anywhere between 50 to 100 shirts. You had to be aggressive. I took a lot from my playbook inside Fenway Park. The faster you are, the, the harder you work, the more you, you sold. I think we all tried to learn like aggressive sales tech, techniques from each other. And that well, we were came also from working, inside yeah, the stadium. Inside so, the you know, the more 
obnoxious, especially talking to the mass whole crowd. They were, and we worked lands now. And, and this is when all the college kids went to the games. So we really worked with the creme de la creme of idiots. I'd throw on the thickest accent I could and heckle people. And just like with everyone, like make fun of the dude's shirt. Or like saying like his girlfriend wanted a shirt. Like just being a dickhead. If you're not playing the part, if you're not like wearing wind pants and like kind of looking like a dickhead, it's not going to fly. We used to just call it like the Sully uniform. It's like denim shorts and a bootleg player jersey and like kind of like a stained undershirt and like a gold chain and it's cool now because it's like a dad hat's now but like a dad hat wasn't cool then maybe you've seen enough movies starring Wahlbergs or Afflecks to know that Boston folks will talk anyone their family their friends and certainly some dude selling shirts outside Fenway Park it was more Boston on Boston (laughs) dude versus angry dude or like you looking at my girlfriend like this would always be like who play tonight dude who let off bro who pitched dude like you get the the quiz you know and, and then you'd like fire back like how many saves is low have dude just go back and forth go back to revere loser you're not even from here but then like dudes would get get psyched they're like looking through their wallet to get out like some crumpled money and then they like they let out like the side burp and then it's just like hold it up so proud at this offensive shirt it's like yeah guy <laughs> There was an awesome technique. I remember using it. I don't think I claimed it. I don't know who I learned it from, but you see a drunk person walking by who you know wants a shirt, but they're just like with their girlfriend or some, you throw the shirt over their shoulder and you tell them $10. You don't, you force a sale. Yankee suck t-shirts. Yeah, guys, who wants a shirt? Yankee suck t-shirts. Getting a Yankee Suck shirt became a rite of passage for Red Sox fans, one of those moments that you never forget. Tommy and Ian are two fans who bought shirts from Ray and his crew. We went in and we saw the Mar- like the Red Sox play the Marlins, like some random team. It had nothing to do with the Yankees. I had gone to my first game at Fenway. It was against the Blue Jays. We came out and they were still outside selling Yankee Suck shirts. And I saw this guy had Yankee Suck shirts, and I said, I got to have one of these. So I had to have a Yankee Suck shirt, so... My dad, of course, got me one. They only had like a size large, and I was 135 pounds at the time, and everything I wore was like a size small, but that's all they had. It's a special shirt. You wear it on game day. You wear it when it matters. I, I kept that shirt until I think I lost it in Hurricane Sandy. You walk by a guy, and you're both wearing Yankee Suck t-shirts, or even if he's just wearing one, put your hand out, give him a high five, and go, yeah, Yankee Suck, and then they'll go, the Yankees. Oh, team sucks in the back. Yankee suck t-shirt. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Dan Shaughnessy witnessed the rise of the shirts as he headed to Fenway each day to cover the Sox. It was a little eye-opening to see that expression on a shirt. It's like, oh boy, now we've crossed another barrier. Seeing it on shirts gave me, emboldened me to, it's okay to put in the paper now because it's it's out there. These shirts were out there. They were everywhere. And even with all their aggressive sales techniques, the shirts mostly sold themselves. The only hurdle was the cops. Sort of. Technically speaking, the Yankee suck shirts weren't illegal. They didn't infringe on any copyrighted material. 
but selling them on the streets of Boston around Fenway Park was a legal gray area. See that car right there, man? The green car, the white Taurus or whatever it is, the green stripe. Code enforcement. They were at the mercy of code enforcement, who would bust them for things like selling without a hawker's or peddler's permit. There was a stretch where at least one guy was getting arrested every single day. And so then, it's really useful to have a lawyer who's a guy who knows a guy. My name is Tom Giblin, and I'm an attorney. Or, in the case of Tom Giblin, a guy who knows all the guys. I was an assistant district attorney in Suffolk County, which is Boston. I probably personally knew half of the police department. Lucky for these kids, Giblin also knew the dad of one of Jamie's college buddies. And Jamie had been given Giblin's number when he had gotten into trouble trying to buy speakers with a credit card that didn't belong to him. Every one of the sellers had Giblin's number. And if they ran into trouble, they knew who to call. Oh, there's that code enforcement dude right there. Where is he? There you are. Right on that corner right there. I'm going to go follow this guy. We started to really map out uh, escape routes around Fenway Park. I knew all of the parking garages, the, the back entrances, the front entrances. I knew how to weave through cars. I knew how to literally take off my shirt and put on another shirt and, and, and try to hide in my hoodie so the code enforcement wouldn't recognize me. Code enforcement couldn't do very much about these kids selling shirts. The worst that could happen was they would take their shirts, write them up, and throw them in a cell for the night. And say, okay, guys, you know, be careful. Don't do this again, because this is just stupid. You're going to get locked up again. Basically, you pay about 100 bucks. The judge says, don't do it again. Don't let me see you again. And, and you try not to show up again. Three days later, they'd be back. We're calling me. Collect. Mr. Gibb, um, yeah, I, I know. I know. You get grabbed again, right? Yeah. Okay. These 20-year-old kids basically had no competition. Even though they were selling a bootleg shirt that would be very easy to replicate. There would be some dudes once in a while that would come with like some bootlegs of bootlegs and think they're going to make 50 bucks, 100 bucks that night, and they would get their kicked every single time. We would pour grape juice on their shirts, chuck their shirts off the bridge, beat them up if we had to. I remember this. The cops confiscated a bunch of shirts from somebody one night. I don't know why. But the next night, these, the sausage guys were selling T-shirts. And I found out about it. So, like, after we were done selling that night, we went over, you know, poured the grape juice on their, on their shirts, slashed all the tires on their truck, you know. <laughs> they never sold them again. Listen, I don't advocate that type of behavior, but in that scenario, like, I understood why it was like, all right, someone's got to beat this dude so he doesn't come back. You're probably wondering how much money these kids made. I'm wondering how much money these kids made. No one gives me a straight answer on this, but here are some clues. I had $20,000 in a shoebox once. I think there's 25 of our friends who didn't have a real job during their four years of college. I just know it was thousands of dollars that I never would have had just working inside Fenway Park. It was a lot of money for somebody in college. Ugh. I I don't really know because I didn't really get into too much of the financial stuff with them. They kept it real close to the vest, and that was their thing to do. And but I know it was you know in in the hundreds of thousands. That's all they'll tell me. But here's what I can figure out: 
there are 80 home games, give or take, at Fenway Park in a season. Obviously, not everyone who went to a game bought a shirt. The guys say four to 500 shirts was an average night. Just looking at their profit share, on a $10 Yankee Suck shirt, they made $4 a pop. On the low end, you are looking at $128,000 per season in cash. And that's conservative. That's averaging only 400 shirts per night. They say that on a good game like Red Sox-Yankees on Patriots Day before the Boston Marathon, they could sell more than 1,100 shirts. Plus, these numbers only take into account the $10 shirts. We were the first people to put the Boston accent in print. We put Noma with an H. I'd never seen it before. Number five on the back. And we and the pitch for that one was Noma with Noah. I mean, Jeter Swallows was like the next like big one. Navy blue, white Yankee suck on the front with Jeter Swallows and the number two on the back. Derek Lowe would pitch a no-hitter. We had Derek Lowe no-no shirts out there. Everybody hated O'Neal, so you had O'Neal sucks. You had, you know, Giambi sucks. You had Yankee suck on the front with the whole roster in the back and Jeter Swallows. And then Jeter Swallows A-Rod once he shows up, you know? And all of our ink, once <laughs> you washed it, it fell off. Not all. <laughs> we were really bad at making shirts. <laughs> All those other shirts, Jeter socks and Giambi socks and everyone socks and Jeter swallows, those shirts went for $20. And the owners were making more like $10 a shirt off those sales. So if they sold 400 shirts a night and made $10 off half of them and $4 off the other half, if you follow my math, that's $256,000 per season in cash. You multiply that by four seasons and... That's going to add up to more than a million dollars in cash profit. But all I could get out of Ray was this. We declared what we had to declare, what our accountant told us to declare. We operated our company at a loss. They told the IRS they made no money. Of course, it's absolutely impossible for me to actually say how much money they were making. But they were spending big. You know, at that point, they were kind of uh, running wild and, and, and crazy, you know, and, and they were making their own money, spending money like drunken sailors. And instead of, you know, listening to advice saying, hey, look, guys, you know, you make $20,000 this week, put 10 in a bank somewhere and go spend the other 10 the way you want to do it so that you can watch it grow and have something. Yeah, they were just, it was burning a hole in their pocket. Well, you can only put cash in so many places. And one of them is at nice restaurants. And really the money facilitated our traveling habits and our dining habits. I mean, Ray and I started fine dining as soon as we could. You know, we didn't know you cooked salmon on applewood. Yeah, I grew up in North Andover, like not Chili's. with money. I never had lobster, nothing like that. Well, I mean, maybe like once or twice, but like, like I never had like a good meal before these guys introduced me to this. We went to pretty much every country in Europe. Um, we went to, you know, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Peru, Australia, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia. We did a lot of frivolous spending. There were guys buying luxury watches, bretlings, people buying suits. This dude buys a motorcycle. This dude gets a nice apartment. This dude's running around in Gucci loafers. Stuff that we really didn't have growing up. 
we had access to so much money so quickly we didn't know what to do with it so of course it went to partying it went to splurging it it went to a, a lot of casino trips to foxwoods and mohegan sun i mean it, it got crazy we didn't know what to do with the money it was coming in so quickly we both had like four thousand dollar watches on at one point but like sold them like no mine got stolen by a hooker there would be times where i would fly somewhere meet up with one of these dudes somewhere and they'd be wearing my shit. and it's just like we don't own shit. everyone considers that money communal so it's like i'll take your jacket i'll take your girlfriend i'll take your car i'll take your drugs like it's no there's no boundaries they were kind of like ants they were always around and there was always some method one way or the other that i would get involved with with one or more there were skirmishes that they were in where they were charged with like assault and battery or threats and then other things where they were victimized and i'd I'd go in and try to talk to the da about helping them because they were either uh, they were victims in assaults and thefts and uh, one of them was shot and held up todd was the one who was shot it was a drug deal gone bad He was trying to sell five pounds of marijuana for $20,000 in the house he lived in with all his friends. The buyers tried to rob him. He tried to be a hero and fight back, and they shot him. He recovered, but it was a scary moment. I had, like, you know, really, like, bad PTSD or whatever you want to call it, you know? Even though most of these kids weren't getting into anywhere near this kind of trouble... One of your friends getting shot and almost killed in a drug deal he decided to do in the house you all share? It shook the group up. I mean, I got out out of the hospital, and um, that's what really got me was when I I got back to the house and I could tell nothing was ever going to be the same again. You know, in that sense of, you know, innocence lost or whatever, that's what really hurt me. I could never get it together again. It was a very real consequence for a bunch of kids who had been very lucky up until that point in terms of avoiding consequences. Todd was out of the business and back home not too long after that. And then something happened that had nothing to do with them, that put everything, their success, the wildness, the money, the shooting, in perspective. We're back at 9 o'clock Eastern time on this Tuesday morning, and we're back with dramatic pictures of an accident that has happened just a short time ago. You're looking at the World Trade Center in lower Manhattan, where just a few minutes ago we're told that a plane, some reports are that it was a small commuter plane, crashed into the upper floors of one of the Twin Towers. You know, it's it's funny. In in many ways, baseball is a universe unto itself and and a world that, that... oftentimes is successful in in keeping the outside world at arm's length. Uh, 9-11 was certainly one occasion where that was not the case. That was certainly one occasion where chanting pejoratives toward the Yankees uh, was anything but appropriate. And all this happened at the moment the Yankee suck kids were becoming more than just a local sensation. The first time our shirt got any press... New Yorker 9-11. The New Yorker's 9-11 issue came out on September 24, 2001. In it, there was an article by legendary baseball writer Roger Angel. And next to it, an illustration. They had an illustration of, like, the 
the crowds at Fenway, it might have been Yankee Stadium, but an illustrated version of a dude like front and center in that illustration with the Yankee Suck shirt on. And this is in the big 9-11 issue with like Susan Sontag and like every major writer writing their initial responses to 9-11. So for us, that was kind of like a wake up in every which way. You know, like, wow, our stupid t-shirt made it, finally got recognized, but 3,000 people, including people we know, are dead. Needless to say, after September 11th, the Yankees' suck shirts didn't go over too well for the next month and a half. Like, we packed it up, basically, and only sold other... We started, we did do a Bin Laden suck shirt. Oh, <laughs> we did. <laughs> Another guy shows up with the, with the Bin Laden spelled wrong. And I'm like, dude, it's spelled wrong. He's like, what? You're dissing the guy. <laughs> what the hell am I trying to get his name right for? I'm trying to diss the guy. He had Bin Laden and we had Bin Laden. Like, <laughs> bin Laden. <laughs> we called him Bin Laden. Roger Angel's article, Legend of the Fens, is subtitled Back the Other Day When Baseball Mattered. It begins by asking the reader to go back with him to before the towers fell back when we could still take pleasure in our games. He talks about the crowd and the bleachers chanting Yankees suck at a Braves game, and he describes a large, dignified-looking gent with well-tended white hair, a bankerish demeanor, and a white t-shirt emblazoned with, yes, Yankees suck in blue block letters. 2001 was a rough season for the Sox. They fired their manager and replaced him with a pitching coach, Jason Veritek broke his elbow, Pedro hurt his shoulder, and Nomar had wrist surgery. By the time Angel wrote his article, it didn't even matter that at one point the Sox had been first in the AL East, up over the Yankees by a full four games. They had once again blown it, which Angel recounts in excruciating detail. He predicts the demolishment of Fenway Park and dooms the Sox to be perennial losers. It's an article written in the wake of everything we as Americans knew changing. That was about nothing ever changing. But even Roger Angel can be wrong. The Sox didn't disintegrate. For the first time in Major League history, the owner of the Boston Red Sox also owns a piece of the New York Yankees. Stop! And the Florida Marlins, too, come to think of it. He is John Henry, to whose consortium of very rich people... Major League owners approved the sale of the Red Sox for $660 million. They got new owners, spent big money, and started to finally catch up to the Yankees. The writing was already on the wall. Yankees suck was passing its peak. Their friends were graduating from college, so they were losing their top sellers. And we all started thinking about what the future was going to hold, what we were going to do with the money we had. They wanted to move on. And they wanted to move on to the very city they stole their idea from in the first place. We realized that New York had something that we wanted to be a part of because we were getting older. We were, we were in our early 20s, and that's when you kind of start thinking about what's next, and New York became the focus. We were like, this is where we want to be. And then all this music started bubbling up, like the Interpols and the Strokes. There was an electronic music scene that, that was going on at the same time that crossed over to the rock scene. We were just like, this is great. By the time the Red Sox suited up for the 2003 season, Ray, Jamie, and Eric had started printing the shirts out of a loft in Brooklyn and running them up to Boston for the games. And they kept that up for the next few years. They had deputized guys to run the operations at Fenway in their place when they weren't around, and then they would take a cut. I just know I I asked for a certain amount of money per game 
as opposed to percentage because percentages, you know, people lie about. On top of that, the Sox had new owners who were hard at work making Fenway friendly and cracking down on unlicensed vendors. But the final nail in the coffin was actually the thing they'd been yearning for from the very beginning. The one thing that they and all Red Sox fans wanted more than anything in the world, that's the thing that finally killed the t-shirt empire. This would be the fifth pennant for the Red Sox since that 1918 season. Here it is. Round out a second. Reese, the Boston Red Sox have won the pennant. The Red Sox staged the greatest comeback in baseball history in 2004. Not only did the Red Sox do something that had never been done in the history of baseball, come back from 3-0, but they did it at the expense of the Yankees. And for a lot of people, that was their World Series, to, to get to the World Series at the expense of the Yankees was better than winning the World Series. Uh, just overcoming the Yankees in a playoff was, was really the, the, the ultimate goal. The Red Sox beat the Yankees and went to the World Series. And after Boston took the first two games of the series at home, Jamie and Ray knew they had to witness history firsthand. They hopped in their van, expired plates and no insurance, and headed straight to St. Louis. Eric got on a plane from California, and the three of them ended this chapter the only way they knew how, by sneaking into Game 4 of the World Series. The Boston Red Sox, one win away from trying to do something that the franchise hasn't accomplished in 86 years. And, that and is- rushing the field when they won. Back to full. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Eric went first and got tackled, and I had already committed, and I jumped, and I because they were tackling him, I got through, and I turn around, I'm running, I'm like, where's everyone else, and no one else behind me, and I see the team celebrating in the field, and I'm running towards that pile, and then I look behind me and see some guy chasing me, and nobody else is at, nobody else, just me, and I'm just like, uh. Ray's the only one who gets onto the field, and he's in all the footage of the team piling onto the mound. The Walt Disney commercial that every team gets after they win a championship, there's Ray running right across the screen. I thought Red Sox fans became far less endearing and attractive after they won. They became like Yankee fans, which is unfortunate, because we always hated Yankee fans uh, rubbing our faces in it. And then the Red Sox fans became Yankee fans, in my view. And that was it. You can't be an underdog anymore. 2004 marked the last time you could credibly chant Yankees suck as the little guy who never wins and always gets the short end of the stick. It was also the last time you could put it on a bootleg t-shirt. Today, if they try to do that, I think within minutes, you'd have security at Fenway Park. You'd have cops swarming the place. Fenway Park is a much kinder, gentler, more heavily regulated place these days. That moment in time when you could buy a handmade shirt outside Fenway Park from the kids who made it, who oftentimes didn't even have a license to be there, that's gone. You wouldn't get away with this today. You wouldn't get away with starting a rogue uh, T-shirt company. And the, the licensing people would be all over you in, like, a heartbeat. And, like, oh, no, you'd be in, like, MLB licensing jail. Those days, those sweet days are over. The, the teams had caught up. 
the teams were, were selling shirts to look like that. Nike was, sell, was selling shirts to look exactly like ours and stuff like that. Now, super simple shirts with super simple phrases are everywhere. We believe, reverse the curse, Boston strong. Catchy phrases are a dime a dozen. And these days, as soon as anyone makes a headline or comes up with a slogan, it goes on a shirt. Just not by a group of kids acting on their own. No, you couldn't do it today because someone would immediately put it online. You can get a Yankee suck shirt online. There is a guy by the name of Chris Wren. He was a fellow hardcore kid, and he still sells Yankee suck shirts. Though they're definitely not bootleg anymore. You can find Chris's shirts in stores like Marshall's and TJ Maxx. I don't think any of them love that Chris is doing this, but it's not like they wish they still were. Like, how much would we have made as a four-piece, like, making these these shirts for the last 15 years? Like, and would we have, would we be as happy with ourselves? I don't know. I mean, I didn't have any interest. To a lot of people, we became these recurring characters at the park. You know, we became staples, just like the sausage guy or whatever, the guy who had $5 hats, $5 hats. And I don't think anyone knows that we were the Yankee Sucks guys when we woke up, when we went to Dunkin' Donuts, when we were at Flan O'Brien's. Like, anywhere we went, we were those guys. And that was weighing on us. You have a bunch of kids in college, and they're into art, and they're into music and they're into all this cool and at the height you look down and you have like breakaway adidas pants on and a gold chain and some tacky watch and your accents thicker and your pockets fatter and you're doing all this you never thought you'd do because you become that person you can say whatever the oh i'm a world traveler and look at me my cool watch like no dude you're a bootleg t-shirt seller and you're an some of those pictures I look at and I'm just like, who the f- are these people? They were 19 when this started. They're almost middle-aged now. They haven't been those people in a long time. You don't realize when you hit the lottery that you hit the lottery sometimes. We hit the lottery. A lot of people been asking why we're breaking up. And we just happen to be at the right place at the right time with the right idea, the right pitcher, the right team. But we don't want to overstay our welcome. To me, I'd rather see people know when to leave than hang around way too long and have people ask them to leave. And I think I attributed too much of the, the success or quasi-success to myself as opposed to the fact that I just literally got lucky. This will be the last time we ever play live. So enjoy it. Thanks for listening. My name is Jody Avergan. You can listen to all the episodes from our first season right now at 30for30podcast.com. And remember, our second season of all new documentaries starts on Tuesday, November 14th, 
Subscribe now in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.